Hi all, it's Tino here and welcome to this episode of the Celtic Exchange between myself and Stephen Colker. This one's pretty different from any of our previous episodes and the only real link with Celtic is that Stephen spent a year under Brendan Rodgers in the Premier League at Swansea. And, had things been different for him off the pitch at the time, he could also have joined up with him again at Celtic a few years later, but that move wasn't to be. As well as Brendan Rodgers, Stephen's also played under Jurgen Klopp, Andre Villas-Boas and Roy Hodgson, to name but a few, as well as for Spurs, Liverpool and the England national team. But it's what Stephen was experiencing off the pitch which makes this episode so important. Having struggled with addiction throughout his teens, Stephen finally hit what he describes as his rock bottom in 2016, a time where he says he fell out of football and fell out of life. Seven years or so later, and still only 31, Stephen continues to fight his own battles, but now finds strength and inspiration in the academy that he set up to support young footballers who find themselves in similar situations. On the field, he's now looking for his next club, having left Sean Maloney's Wigan at the end of the season. But for a player who's been capped for England and played at the African Cup of Nations, that shouldn't be too difficult. And I'll let Stephen explain that fascinating international journey a bit later in the episode. All that aside, we've also linked to a number of helpful resources if anyone finds himself struggling with any of the themes discussed in this recording. And please do share the episode with anyone you think might enjoy or benefit from it. Thanks as always for supporting what we do and enjoy this episode with Stephen Colker. Stephen, welcome to the Celtic Exchange and thanks for joining us here today. To get us started, can you give us an insight into your current situation in terms of plans for the season ahead? So, you obviously finished last season at Wigan, where you initially went under Colo Turi, I think, and then Sean Maloney. A couple of guys, of course, who have got Celtic connections. But what's your situation at the moment? So, I left I left Wigan um, in the summer, so I'm currently a free agent. I've had a few offers so far, um, none of which that are quite right for me at this moment in time. So, um, well, we, we, we're mid-July. Uh, I'm not quite panicking yet. I'm, I'm, I'm being patient. I've, I've been in this position a good few times before. So, um, it was six weeks or so to run. So, um, I'm just waiting, waiting for the right offer. You know, I'm at the age of 31, I want, I want the right package, um, you know, in terms of the club, the manager, the location for my family. Um, it's not as easy as when you're, you know, 19, 20, and you can just get up and go anywhere. So um, I'm being patient. If the right thing comes, then then great. If it doesn't, then um, as I'm sure we'll speak by later, I've got a lot of other things going on in the background that, that are certainly keeping me busy. Yeah, it sounds like there's a, a lot of stuff off-field keeping you busy, and we'll get to all that just shortly. What what about fitness-wise, Stephen? Do you just keep yourself ticking along? Do you have your own programme at the moment? Every day, yeah, every single day. So that's definitely the toughest part about being um, a free agent sort of you're you're having to obviously maintain your fitness levels because you never know when the call's going to come and as it's been well when did I leave Wigan so last uh, middle of May and then I had my Afghan qualifiers in the middle of June so so since middle of June which is about a month now I've not actually played uh, a game so obviously clubs have that question mark around your fitness so you have to keep ready because they could say, oh, I'll tell you what, come in and train for a couple of days. It's not always as simple as, right, there's a two-year deal, especially as, you you know, I'm in my 30s now, it's kind of like, right, come in and train. So I have to keep myself fit every single day, um, which is fine to most people because most people like, you know, training or whatever anyway. But 
uh, it's the level of which we have to push ourselves to, which is sometimes uh, difficult. It's my fifteenth preseason, so um, so it can it can be challenging. But uh, but no, I'm good. I feel good. I definitely feel better for it mentally. It definitely it definitely makes me feel better going for a, a sort of a twenty minute blast in the morning sets me up nicely for the rest of the day. Yeah, and, and I'm sure it's hard to motivate yourself when it's just you personally. You know, you may be doing something local to where you're living. You, you just need to have that. I suppose you need to have that inner drive to to push yourself on because it'd be easy to get lazy and take a day off. Whereas, you know, if you're connected to a club at this moment in time, you go to the club, you go to the training ground and you just join in with the group. So it sounds like it's a challenge in itself and, and good to hear you're keeping fit and hopefully the right opportunity comes around soon. Off the yeah. field, Stephen, you've been instrumental in setting up Behind the White Lines, which is described as an aftercare academy for young players who've fallen out of football. Could you tell us a wee bit about that at the moment and about why it's just so important to you? So during that period where I was, well, I, I, I left Dundee at the age of, I want to say, 26. And um, during that period, I, I had no idea where I was going to turn to. You know, I mean, even, even prior to signing for Dundee, I mean, Neil McCann reached out, which I was fortunate to, to have someone who sort of re reached out on a personal level, um, offered me a, a safe space to come and, and, and play and train at Dundee. Without that, without the opportunity, I, I, I was kind of stuck in the wilderness there. But uh, it sort of prolonged it because all it did was it gave me an extra sort of six, seven months. I then walked away from Dundee because it, that was always the plan six months in. If I hadn't got back to where I wanted to, I was going to walk away. Walked away and I, I found myself in, in, in no man's land. And I was reaching out to every team, couldn't get a contract to save my life, couldn't get a trial, couldn't get anyone to even let me just train, you know, on a on a on a non-trial basis, just literally someone to keep fit with, you know, in and amongst the boys. And, you know, it always helps us having a changing room there, having having uh, the boys to help you through always helps. But I was I was neglected of all of that. And um a lot of that was down to my own doing. You know, I suffered severely with addiction and football felt that they couldn't trust me. And um so during that period I thought what am I going to do? Because at that stage, I had nothing else, right? Um, so that led me to think to myself, okay, I didn't want to create anything right then because it wasn't the right time. I thought I want to get back to a position of strength and be able to tell my story from 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 lived experience of getting out of it rather than just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm crying about my situation. Um, it wouldn't have been crying about my situation, but it may have come across like that. So I just felt... Let me let me rebuild and then come back to this. So so now I'm back. I'm I have rebuilt and I'm back at a stage where I say, okay, that period where I was so lost with no identity. Imagine that being for an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old. Where would they turn? Um, they may not then get the opportunity in Turkey because they haven't got the name or the CV behind them. So what would they do? What would their next steps be? And unfortunately, players end up in jail. Players end up dead, which is just catastrophic. You know, I've interviewed the parents and and there's nothing more serious than, than death, right? So I, I'm fully aware of the issues that we currently face and I wanted to offer and, and create a sort of soft transition for these boys. So um, there's a place for them to, to to come to directly after being released. They come to us, they're with like-minded individuals who are in the same situation. We have full-time training. We have games against other teams where there's opportunities to get back into football. And alongside getting back into football, they have new pathways created. So we've created new pathways, i.e. scholarships uh, to universities free of charge, um, scholarships to America free of charge, um, pathways into banking, into various different businesses. So there's so much going on. Um, honestly, it's like, that's why I mentioned at the beginning, like time-wise, like this is, this, is a, this is a job in itself. 
Um, but it's one that I enjoy doing. Is I just enjoy giving back and um, seeing, 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 a, seeing a difference being made. Albeit it might be small, it might just help the one player. Is it's still like it, it's definitely a really good feeling. Yeah, and I looked into behind the white lines just you know ahead of the recording here, Stephen, and, and there's a lot going on. So as I say, it's described as an aftercare academy run by professionals for professionals, and there's three main areas areas of focus, if I'm right. So number one to provide a platform for late development um, and also for players who may perform better under different coaches and also to present a potential opportunity to step back into football. Secondly, it's to allow that transition into business, further education or scholarships, as you've mentioned. And thirdly, and I think maybe the most important of all, to ensure that you take care of every player's uh, mental health on and off the pitch. And is that your main driver at the moment, Stephen? You've spoken about it's, it's personal lived experiences for you. And is that your main driver to ensure that other people have got the support that you maybe didn't have? Yeah, absolutely. I just, I mean, look, for me, there's nothing more lonely, you know, going through them periods of, of depression. I still suffer with them now. And, you know, I've, I've been I've been an addict and I'm an addict. I don't believe that I ever just, just change overnight. You know, I, I may be clean today, but I still live with the demons in my head that tell me having a drink or having a bet is, is the best way out. So... I understand how lonely and, and difficult it can be during those times. And I just want to make sure that no one else is suffering alone. I can't take the pain away from them, but I can ensure that they have some form of support there. Um, you know, and it's up to them how much they want to use it. You know, that's 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 the beauty of it. It's like we're not forcing anything anything onto anybody. It's there for them. Um, we, we're trying to make it look cool because I think that's also an important factor. You know, often um, in, a, in a very non-disrespectful way, when you get the the sixty year old guy come in in the suit and tie, telling them about where they should invest their money, it's slightly harder for the players to relate at the age of sixteen, seventeen, as it would be to if it's if it's someone coming in at the age of thirty who's still playing or just mm -hmm. recently retired. I just feel there's so much um, more. It's, it's so much more relatable for the young boys, and we're finding that they're getting a lot more um, engagement back. So the clubs are actually going, actually, this is kind of a really good work. So we're actually not not just an aftercare academy, we're also stepping into the clubs and doing many conversations there. So we're actually due up in Scotland um, later on this month. Um, we're going into Hibs. We also had conversations with the other side of Glasgow. So um, not yet with Selwyn, but uh, but who knows? That I'm sure there'll be, there, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, in the next few years we'll, we'll be everywhere and we'll be, we'll be helping try to prevent these issues rather than just being there to pick up the pieces. Yeah, I think it's a great target to have and, and I wish you luck with that. I hope you, you know, you get into more clubs uh, moving forward. It's clear that you're very passionate about it, Stephen, and just a straight question at the moment. What would you say motivates you most at this moment in time? Is it the Behind the White Lines project or is it, of course, your your bread and butter of your professional football career? It's a good question. Um, a bit of both, a bit of both. And, and that's why I've been honest with the clubs that have approached me. It hasn't been the right offer. So I don't want to go somewhere where I don't feel that uh, I can give 100% because it might not be that's at the right location, the right club, the right level, the right time. So I kind of, I'll know when it's the right project and then I'll, I'll know, right, this is where I want to be. So I want to play my football for a year and I want to, wherever I go, I want to give 100%. You know, I've never been any different. Even even during my periods of madness, I still always gave 100% on the pitch. My problem was I was giving 110% in, in, in the bookies, in the, in the pub. You know, but I, regardless of that, when I turned up to the pitch, it was it was always there. So, um, you know, my performances were affected and my, uh, my my form dipped and all that kind of stuff. But that was not through 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 lack of trying. Believe me, that's 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 something that's that's always remained uh, always remained with me. You know, I've always kind of 
I think it's kind of misunderstood that footballers are, are seen as lazy or not wanting to try. And um, I, there, there may be some cases for sure. I've definitely come across one or two in my career, but over 15 years, there's not been many. Um, majority of people that might be struggling with confidence, struggling with home life, uh, don't like the manager, they're homesick. You know, all those different factors lead into, into players' performances. Despite the various ups and downs you've had, Stephen, across your career and the, and the challenges that you faced, it sounds there like you've always maintained that that strong and solid work ethic. Where does that come from? Is that something that's, that's just inbuilt in you? You've always had that, or was it passed on through you know maybe one of your peers or family? Where, where did you get that from? Yeah, it's just it's just been from such, from such a young age. You know, I started with with uh, playing park football. I wanted to be the best in the park. Then I wanted to be the best at Sunday League, the best at the academy. Um, I was also doing athletics, so I wanted to win every race. Um, it, I mean, in, in sort of AAGA, we call it the ism. You know, it's like, that's how the ism, like, I, I just always want more. always want to be the best. Um, on one side, it's great. And on the other side, it's it's definitely challenging. So um, I personally could, like, say to myself, it's the, the gift is the curse, you know, because it's like that drive that, that when I left Dundee and was in the wilderness, that that same drive made me and helped me push through. But at the same time, I'm like, that drive just keeps me going. That just keeps me going, keeps me going. When I think um, during my career, there should be many moments where I could have maybe taken a step back and had a breather. Um, my drive's relentless, so I just, you know, keep pushing. Um, but I guess the ultimate answer, which I'm getting to the stage now, it's at the age of 31, heading towards the end of my career, is at what point, is enough you know i see players playing until 40 and and you know I mean, they're just i mean they're, they're they're special they're just i mean incredible absolutely incredible to to continue to do that and it's not just as latans you know you've had phil jack elker at stoke you know continuing and um it's just incredible yeah it, it sounds like that that drive you've got that 100 thing as a double-edged sword you know good at times and maybe not so good at different times and and of course we'll get to that and um, when talking about behind the white lines you do so, as mentioned, having come through similar experiences to a lot of these young players. So, Stephen, you've played with some of the biggest clubs in the game with the likes of Spurs and Liverpool. You've been capped for England and for Sierra Leone, which which I'm really keen to discuss with you. Uh, you've played under managers like Jurgen Klopp, Andre Villa-Boas, I think, at Spurs, yeah. Roy Hodgson, yeah. Brendan Rodgers. But it's not been a career, you know, without challenges, of course, and, and we'll maybe cover some of that as we go on. But in your 14, 15-year career to date, where did you find yourself at your happiest, Stephen? And, and where do you think you played your best football? Would definitely be at Swansea as a 19-year-old. Uh, my first year in the Premier League was just was just amazing. I was fortunate to work under Brendan Rodgers at the time, who really looked after me. Um, and, you know, I, 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 we kind of don't really speak anymore actually because of what nearly happened at Celtic or what didn't happen at Celtic rather. And um, but definitely, I would I would speak very highly of him of my time at the age of nineteen. It was just it was just amazing. You know, I mean, even from picking me up at the train station, showing me around the the, the city, and saying, "Right, this is where you're going to live. This is the club. This is this is what it means to the people." It, you don't really get that personal touch. Like it sounds strange, but you turn up to a new city, um, you don't know where you're going to stay, you don't know anyone around, you don't know you don't know where's the best place to live, and you just turn up to training and. and uh, that's it. You meet the manager two minutes before you go out to train. It's like good luck, man. So there's no kind of welcome. Whereas he took the time, the, took time out to be personal, and 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 that sort of meant a lot to me. And um, I had a great year. I loved it. We we finished like 10th or 11th in the Premier League that year. Uh, beat the likes of Arsenal, Liverpool, um, Man City, even so. 
yeah, that that for me was was definitely a happy memory. And it was kind of, I mean, although I was still suffering with addiction at the time, it was kind of, um, it was kind of under control to a certain degree. Um, I mean, I did still end up in rehab during that year, but it was still kind of like, oh, you've got a bit of a problem with gambling. It wasn't seen as you have a problem. You know, it was kind of it was the beginning of the issues. Yeah, and let's stay on that that season at the moment. So 2011-2012, as you say, Swansea Premier League, you're there under Brendan Rodgers' uh, managership. And if I'm right in saying, was he one of the first managers, Stephen, and you're obviously your early career, you're only 19 at that time, but was he one of the first managers to maybe identify some issues and, and to show some concern for your well-being? Yeah, I mean, after he, he saw me on a night out in Tenerife, yeah, I think that was the moment where, where the penny dropped. So we'd gone for a, a, a team break. Um, I'm not sure why. It might have been international break. I'm not sure. But we had four or five days in Tenerife over there, warm weather training. And um, it was the first time he actually saw me drunk. And I don't remember what happened because, unfortunately, what happened with me every time was I'd black out. Uh, what ninety percent of the time I black out, so I, I, you know, I don't remember from you know, having a few drinks with the boys by the pool to then, you know, on this night out, and I'm not home until six a.m. But I don't know what's happened between seven p.m. and, and six a.m. So um, scary times. And he pulled me in the office the next day when we got back. I was just like, I've, I've never seen anything like it. You know, you you're wired differently. I've I've heard rumors about how you are around town, but. It just it doesn't make sense to me because I see you here as you know the 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 kind and caring boy, and then I hear these stories and I've I've seen that side of you. It just doesn't match up. That's just it's just not you. Um, you're wired differently. You need to get support. That's going to mess up your career. And uh, yeah, he was right. You know, I, I mean, I I reached out for support. I just wasn't ready. Um, I had various different um things in place i.e is it the rehab um i had uh the recovery meetings i mean i was i was only in gammas anonymous at the time but um, i was familiar with you know basically trying to take care of myself and following through the 12 steps but it just wasn't working nothing was working and, and do you think brendan rogers so we obviously know him well here at celtic and he's now back at the club and aside from anything else coaching wise he does seem a particularly intelligent character and certainly an emotionally intelligent character. Do you think he showed that kind of emotional intelligence at that stage to you that had maybe been missing elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I felt so. I mean, I don't want to do injustice to the other managers previously um, because I feel like with addiction, it it goes through stages. So at the age of 17, it wouldn't have been visible. At the age of 18, when I was at Bristol City in the Championship, I mean, again, they were aware because I, I was in I was in the casino um, or seen in the casino the night before a game. So they were aware that I had issues, but my performances were great. Um, everything was going well. So it's kind of just a case of like, if I, just keep it, keep it under control, you know. And, um, you know, I look back and I'm often asked this question in, in, in sort of interviews and stuff like, could the clubs have done different? Should the manager have done this or done that? And I'm like, um, they do the best they can from their understanding. So unless football changes and and makes it um, compulsory to, to do, have some kind of emotional uh, training course you know, to, to, to develop their emotional intelligence, then how are they ever going to understand how to deal with those situations? They also have to deal with a squad of 25 plus their staff, plus the pressure from the board and the chairman to get results. They've got a lot going on. So um, I never like to point fingers, but uh, it's definitely an issue that, that, that football faces. And um, I think that like, we collectively need to do something to change it. Um, rather than just say it's the individual or it's the club. I think 
the the the, the associations can get behind it as well. Yeah, it, it sounds like a you know a big ongoing challenge challenge for you to you know to just to get closer to managers and, and the people that have got that influence over the young players. I, I read a quote, Stephen. I'm not sure if it's one of your own quotes or from someone associated with behind the white lines, but it reads as follows. Sometimes it's not all about reaching out, but for other people to reach in too. And how important do you think that quote is, Stephen? Uh, and how relevant has it been to your experiences? Yeah, so that's 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 the, that's one of my own. Yeah, I used to say that to the doctor at Wigan a lot of the time. <laughs> I uh, I signed him a shirt when I left with them with their exact words on. So it's not about it's not always about reaching out. Sometimes about reaching in because. Uh, for me, it's important, you know, that, that everyone has this, you know, so many campaigns now around mental health and it's always about reach out, reach out if you're struggling. But actually, when someone hasn't called, hasn't texted for a while, um, reach in, you know, see how they get on. Because sometimes, um, well, certainly speaking from my own experience, that, that I, I want to isolate. That's that's what my addiction, my depression wants to do is I want to isolate, um, wallow in self-pity and think the world's against me. And sometimes someone reaching in to see how I am um can often change change that thought process and just sort of break it up for me so that's certainly something i do in my life a lot today you know i'm i'm um forever busy trying to support people who are suffering with as various different addictions suffering with low low low, low confidence in the football inside of things and often i will reach out to them um sometimes with no reply and that also hurts because then i'm like oh great like why am i wasting my time but i remember actually what it's like when i was in that situation so uh try again a little bit later and um, and, and uh, often we'll always sort of be, be greeted with a, with a nice warm response because, you know, at the end of the day, no one wants to actually be alone with, even if their head is telling them that. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's a great message. It really kind of flips everything on its head because, you know, we all see different ads at this moment in time, you know, promoting positive mental health, but it's all reach out, it's good to talk, pick up the phone, speak to others. But actually there, there can be a a real positive and others maybe just identifying. And I suppose you're in a great position, Stephen. You can see the, the telltale signs and signals and maybe young people that you've experienced yourself and you're in a great position, a very fortunate position, if that's the right term, that you can see when somebody maybe just needs a, you know, maybe even just a text message or a, or a call or something like that. So it's really positive, I think, to flip that message on its head and to encourage others to reach in at times too, so great to hear that. Um, just before we move on from the kind of Swansea time and, and Brendan Rodgers, could I just ask about Brendan Rodgers as a coach, Stephen? So aside from the support that he provided to you, um, he's obviously of huge interest here at Celtic. He's back now after four years or so down in the Premier League with Leicester. And just can you hear what you think about him as a coach and the, the approach he took on the training field and on match days? Amazing. As, 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 a, as, a, as a manager, as a coach, amazing. For sure, definitely one of the best I've worked with. So, as you mentioned before, been fortunate to work with the likes of of, of Jurgen Klopp, Vinicius Boas, um, Harry Redknapp, and this goes on. But for me, Brendan definitely, um, yeah, I would say definitely is 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 one of the the, the best in the game as as a coach for sure. Um, tactically, very very good. Obviously, you know, went to went to Celtic many many years ago, and I, I believe transformed the way they played football. You know, not just obviously the success of I mean, in terms of trophies was was phenomenal, but also in the style of play. So it just it's so easy as a player to play under him because you know exactly where the next player is going to be. So often, I mean, I remember before watching players and how do they play like that? How do they? Play? But it, it's very similar to Brighton. It's like when when you have a coach. 
with that level of understanding who can who can train you to know exactly where that next move is going to be. You get so comfortable. You can wait on the ball for 30 seconds because you know as soon as that player runs to you, the midfielder is going to drop. You play that, the triangle is there. So it's having that trust in your players, but that comes from repetition, repetition, repetition. So um, as a coach, amazing. Um, and it's really it's sort of incredible to then see the difference. So, I, you know, I mentioned Redknapp just there. Um, you know, obviously a very famous manager and obviously, you know, known as one of the best. But in terms of tactically, he, he, he never offered that. So, you know, there was never, so often what it was, his philosophy was kind of like, right, I'll get the best 11 and I'll put them on the pitch and they'll know what to do. And um, that was obviously a success for many, many years, especially when you had the likes of Luka Modric, Gareth Bale, Deadly King, all on one pitch, Lennon, Defoe, et cetera. They were able to do the business. But when, when I pulled away from that, and it was like, okay, now what happens when you just put, you're going up against a Man City who are tactically very astute. How do you then just, just wing it? basically how, how do you do that and um that's where i kind of feel there's been such a change in management if you if you look now it's like everyone has their own playing philosophy everyone has their own playing style because um because of the likes of brendan and and, and many others of course who are sort of changing the game and and uh with a lot of tactical knowledge yeah and it must have been great at a young age at 19 to to be exposed to that kind of tactical awareness and i'm sure it's influenced your own thinking in a, in a positive way and we'll maybe get to the potential of, of Stephen Colker, the coach, at some point later than chat as well. But I'm sure that's been a really positive influence. Last question uh, on Brendan Rodgers and, and Celtic. Um, you had a chance, I think, to join him here in Glasgow around about 2017. Any regrets or, or big reasons for not doing so, Stephen? Yeah, well, as I said earlier, he's not spoke to me since. So it's, it was a bit, of a, a bit of a strange period, really. So I was just sort of going through my recovery. As I said, prior to going to Dundee, I was also sort of in, a, in, in the wilderness, if you like. And I reached out to Brendan, said to him, look, what do you recommend I do in this situation? You know, like I'm trying to find a way back in. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I was still signed for QPR, but I was kind of neglected there. Um, and I just felt, what, what next? Where do I get a fresh start? So um, that's where the conversation began. And he was then uh, very welcoming and said, look, come up to Celtic. And I was like, okay. Um, but during that same period, QPR were undergoing a transition and Ian Holloway was uh, very keen for me to stay. He was, I mean, he's a huge advocate for mental health and he believed that he could he could support me in London. So uh, the battle kind of began. And I, and I mean, not as in the battle between the clubs, a battle between my mind, you know, which one is the best next step uh, for me in my recovery, um, came up to Celtic with my girlfriend, got all shown around the club, um, had a really nice sort of couple of days there, felt amazing, it's beautiful. I, I mean, I'm very familiar with Scotland, as I mentioned, I've got family there. Um, everything, everything felt great. We were then, my agent was then negotiating with the club, QPR in the background, I've got Holloway calling me every day, stay here, like this is the place to be, you know, you're, you're, you've got sober in London, stay in London, this is where your network is, your, your, your support groups. Um, and, and I just went through a sort of weak sort of uh, torment, if you like, in my head of which one's best, which one's not, which one's best. And hindsight's a wonderful thing, you know, I chose to stay at QPR, um, it was a disaster. It was it was an absolute disaster on and off the pitch. Um, it, it just all went wrong, and um, I of course wished that I I signed for Celtic, but um, I literally wasn't to know. It was just a case of what's going to be best for me um, at that moment in time. And um, as I said, hindsight's a wonderful thing. You know, six months later, 
um, I was then, or a year later, I'm not sure which one, I was then signing for, for Dundee and having to go and play against Celtic, you know? So it's kind of like, um, it kind of shows how quickly things can change. And, uh, you know, not in a disrespectful way again, but obviously how, how I mean, it's a big drop from Celtic to Dundee, right? But that's that's kind of what happened. And um, yeah, so I, I, I took them to, to go to Dundee and actually I, I did really enjoy it. And I kind of look back on, on things and say, um, they're all learning curves. I try not to regret them. Trust me, there are days where I, I definitely regret them. If I'm honest, where I think I should have done this, should have done that. But um, in general, I would like to think that I look at them as uh, as, as learning curves and, uh, and, and and good experiences. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Earlier on in the recording, Stephen, you described Dundee as a, a safe space at the time. And I'm thinking, I, I've heard you speak on other podcasts about your time at Dundee, and I'm thinking of some of the guys in the dressing room that were, that were alongside you. And I don't know if safe, safe space is the word I would use around some of those guys, but quite a lively dressing room at the time, I can imagine. Incredible, yeah. No, it, was, it honestly it was just amazing. I mean, he offered me a safe space in the sense that he didn't bring me in and have expectations on me to do this, this, that and the other. He brought me into a place where I felt at home. And, you know, that was important for me, you know, the pressures of the Premier League, the pressures of even the championship, you know, like you're constantly under scrutiny. The newspapers are on me. I just couldn't breathe. And and, and that's what I meant by safe space. No, it was uh, full of characters. Um, I really enjoyed it. You know, I've spoken, I've spoken previously, but I did really enjoy it. It's just, it's a real different feeling, you know, when you go and play for the likes of Dundee. You know, everyone's together there. Um, yeah, so there's no judgment. Everyone welcomes me. And uh, and I loved it. I loved it. You know, it was, it was six months of... Of, uh, of of madness, but but the but the football was good. Uh, we managed to stay in the league, which was our goal at the time when I joined in January was to stay up. We managed to do that. Uh, made a lot of friends, still in contact with a lot of them now. And um, and yeah, just as I said, like again, just a, you know, another good experience. Yeah, so, so obviously around that time that you've mentioned, you had that big call to make whether to stay at QPR or come to Celtic. And from our point of view. It had been really interesting and great to see you up here in Glasgow, but it, it wasn't to be. And obviously you've made your decision there, maybe less on, on football reasons and more on your personal situation and, and, and your mental health and your headspace at the time. So you've mentioned, Stephen, around that time, 2016-17, that was when you felt you hit rock bottom and you said that, quote-unquote, you'd fallen away from football and fallen away from life. Could you talk about what was going on at that time and, and what took you to that kind of place? Well, at that point, you know, I'm, my my addictions were rife. You know, from from the gambling point of view to the to the to the alcohol. To, I mean, just everything. To us, I was addicted to escapism. So, whether it be women, gambling, alcohol, food, um, I, I, that was me. I'm fortunate to have never touched drugs. Thank God, because of my career. Because I would never, I would never like to even know where that would end up for me. So, um, those four were more than enough. Those four just it brought me to my knees. You know, I destroyed my relationship, destroyed uh, the trust within my family. Um, I was I was gambling way more than I could afford. That's for sure, uh, as I believe any you know compulsive gambler does. But it it got bad. You know, I, I barred myself from everywhere in the UK, so I couldn't gamble there anymore. Then I was getting offered uh free um free passes to, to cyprus to, to monaco all these uh, glamorous trips where they put you on business class flights fly you and your friends over you know five-star hotel stays you can gamble as much as you want they give you money back of your losses all of this kind of stuff it was it's it's a it's a bubble designed for the gambler um for the addict really and, and to keep you there to keep you in that bubble and 
um, I was well and truly in the bubble, but every time it popped and I had to fly home, I, you know, I was suicidal. You know, I've spoke about it before. I, w- I was absolutely gone because I was looking back at what I had and, and what had now gone and just thinking, oh my God, like um, I'm, I come from humble beginnings, you know, and, and, and I never, it was never sort of flash from my money. That was never the case. So, I mean, that's, that's, I'll touch on that just a little bit about being misunderstood. So the, the way the papers can make things sound or the way football clubs can look upon you, I know it's different today, but five years ago, it wasn't different. If you were, if you were known as a drinker, you were known as a party boy. But mine, mine was never the party boy. So maybe at 18, 19, I was the party boy. But by the time I was 22, 23, um, I was, I was the, I was, I was a depressed drinker. You know, I was the guy that, I, I mean, I'll happily just drink at home. You know, it was just a case of whatever it was just to, to escape my feelings, to block it all out. Um, but what would happen was I would start at home with the intention of staying at home. But once once the drink took me and I blacked out, I could end up every, anywhere. So um, I, was, I was very familiar with, with the police stations, very familiar with, with uh, court. And, you know, every time I go to court, they would smash me with a fine, put you in a paper. And uh, I was, yeah, I was broken um, physically, mentally, emotionally. I was, I was another term we use is spiritually bankrupt and, and that was certainly me at the time so um there was nowhere else to turn there was no more money to gamble there was no more money to even drink um and that was that was the moment where i kind of had to go right okay now it's it's i'm either dead or i find a way back and 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 i've i've got a child to think about um, and i've got a lot of people around me who love me who are desperate for me to get well um and that was kind of my motivation to do it uh to start getting well because it wasn't for me i know a lot of the people said like i got well for me but i couldn't at the time because i hated you know i hated myself so it was a case of getting well for others to begin with and then learning to, to sort of love myself again so been a hell of a journey since then um not all up there's been there's definitely been setbacks within it but uh if I look at the sort of trajectory over the last five, six years, it's definitely, even though there's been dips in it, it's definitely sort of a, on an upward trend. So um, it's far more positive than, than what it was. Yeah, and amazing to hear that, Stephen. Stephen, for any, I was going to say maybe, you know, young footballers or, or sports people or anyone in, in the game, but actually for anyone in general who finds himself in, you know, that kind of deep and, and dark place, what's the first steps in getting out of that, Stephen? I know it's, you know, a, a a slow and long recovery at times, but what would be the first steps for someone in that kind of position to try and and move on from that and get to a more positive space in life? Well, the biggest thing for me was was accepting that I'm sick. So before I just thought I could control it. It's not sickness. It's not an illness. It's not disease. Whatever term people use, it's not. It's none of those. Like I, I need to just control it. Uh, and that started with me saying, "I'll just I'll just drink beer instead of sambuca. I'll just do this instead of that." Later on, I realized obviously that was not the case. So for me, the acceptance, the surrender was the absolute first steps, 100%. Because without that, there's you can go to AA, you can go to therapy, but if you're not accepting that actually I've got, I need help, I've got a problem, um, then, then it's just banging your head against a brick wall. So the acceptance that you've got an issue um, and, and, and that your life's become unmanageable, you know. So for me, what what really simplified it was because I was kind of confused. Am I a drinker? Am I an alcoholic or am I not? Because I wasn't a daily drinker. I wasn't someone who drew the curtains and, and, and drank from morning till night. I didn't drink on a park bench. So am I this typical alcoholic or this image of the typical alcoholic? I, I'm not that, so am I? And where it got simplified for me is, can you drink without consequences? And it was just it was just so simple that 
the answer became no. Well, there we are then. So AA is a place for you. So uh, going into AA, being around like-minded people, uh, finding a therapist that suits me. So tried various different ones in the past. And um, it's funny because we would try different drinks, different foods and everything. But with therapy, I hear a lot of people say, I've tried therapy, didn't work. It wasn't for me. And it's like, well, did you try another one? Uh, or did you just, just try that one drink, that one meal? You, you often try something different and, and that's the same for the therapy. So find one that works for you, whether that's man or woman. And uh, and from there, um, I, I believe that the process will take care. And it's, it's a unique journey for everybody. So I wouldn't like to say what that journey looks like, but I would definitely say those are the first few steps. Yeah, and it's it's important that others can hear that message, Stephen. So thanks for sharing that. Um, we're now around about six years on from you know what you've described there as your, your lowest ebb. That includes a, a COVID pandemic, which obviously had such a, a big impact on the mental health of so many. But do you feel now, Stephen, you're a long way away from that time? and um, Or do you still have, have struggles on a, a daily basis? No, I still I still struggle. Um, no, absolutely, I still struggle. It's definitely a, definitely a daily reprieve. Um, there's days where I want to get out of bed. There's days where I think, what am I doing all this for behind the white lines? Nobody cares about it. Uh, just just bid it all up. There's definitely days I go through that cycle. And then there's other days where I feel on top of the world. Everyone's saying this is amazing. I'm seeing kids benefit from it. I'm seeing parents benefit from it. And I'm like, wow, what an amazing thing. So there's 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 certainly different days. Um, I still live with the battle within, you know. Uh, some days I want to drink. Some days I want to gamble. Um, thankfully, I have the right things in place today to understand that that's not the answer um, and often it's just a short impulse and it's like just not acting on that impulse um, reaching out to somebody having a conversation those kind of things that um, that seem to work but as I, as I mentioned earlier there's some days that, that, that I, I'm not strong enough to reach out and thankfully my network of people will then reach in and that kind of uh, keep, keeps me going. Brilliant stuff. Stephen just to move back slightly um, to your earlier career so you signed your first pro contract with Spurs at the age of 17 I think around about July 2009. You remained at the club for four years before moving on in 2013. In those ages of around about 17 to 21 they're crucial years for any young person actually no matter what walk of life they find themselves in. Um, 14 years or so on from your start then as a professional do you feel young players now are supported sufficiently at their academies? Obviously, you're now in contact with a lot of them through the programme at Behind the White Lines. And I'm thinking more, you know, especially players who maybe show some sort of vulnerability, signs of addiction and that kind of thing. And just on that note, I remember reading somewhere that, you know, when you were at a low point, around about 70 clubs rejected you, you know, in terms of trial or signing you and things like that, which must have been very hard to take. But do you feel that at that time, football turned its back because of, of your issues and your addictions? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I touched on it earlier. They couldn't trust me. You know, managers, clubs, directors, whatever, they couldn't trust me. So they, they felt that what if he comes in the door and he has another relapse, where is it, where is it going to end up? Um, and, and, and I understand that because at that period there, there was no consistency. So I was getting clean for a month, two months, three months and falling away. Whereas, obviously, once I put some, some like, a period of time together, and then I went to Turkey and everything, then it was a different story. You know, clubs could go, okay, cool. He's sober for one year, he's sober two years, three. Then it was far more easy for them to trust me. But during that period of of uh, one month, two months, it was impossible for them to trust me. So going back to the to the young players and um, for them and their support, um, 
there's definitely a real desire there for change. So the clubs, the player care officers, the managers, there's definitely a real desire there. They're, they're, they're doing a lot of work. Um, is it working? It's 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 certainly helping somewhat. Uh, it's definitely it's definitely better than what it was. Um, I guess in the case of trial and error, they're also discovering what works, what doesn't. There's still the main issue for me, which is the trust. So the players don't trust the club because um, more often than not, clubs and managers use it against the players. So it's all very well. They'll sit there on a podcast and say, oh, no, we support the players. Or they'll say it in the, in the newspaper or on Sky Sports. But we, are, as players, understand very differently that actually behind closed doors, um, it's often used against us. And um, I guess if you look at two players in the same position and one of them struggles with mental health, one of them doesn't, naturally you're choosing the one who doesn't. Um, but there's no support for the one who does. And it's kind of like that's where uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and like I said, there's, we're definitely moving in the right direction, but it's a slow process. And that's where I find the players reach out to me independently or reach out to other you know, people within our network independently for support because they know they're not going to be judged and it's not going to be used against them in terms of getting the next contract or, or getting on the team sheet for the Saturday. In the next question, Stephen, it's quite a simple question, but I'm not sure if there is a simple answer. But what do you think can be done better or differently in the game? Communication. Yeah, it's a, for me, that's that's the number one thing. You know, I want to be a manager. I'm doing my coaching badges currently. And, you know, I still have fortunate to work under a lot of great managers. The number one thing that I would I would add to, to any of the managers I've worked under would be communication. So I just feel like it's so, so important. If you're not playing have that conversation with the player about why he's not playing, what he can do to, to improve. Um, let him know what you're thinking rather than the player sit there and second guess every move, every decision, think it's all all about him and why and what could he do better. And I just, there's so many managers in the game that are dishonest because they don't want the confrontation and they would just give you an answer that you, they think you want to hear and it doesn't help anybody. You know, the players sit away and think, well, that doesn't make sense because a week later he contradicts himself, two weeks later he contradicts himself. And um, that's where, for me, even the best managers have lost changing rooms because they they it starts with one or two players and then it becomes three or four. And then before you know it, there's 10 players who aren't playing because it's got a 25, right? You only get your 11 and your few subs every week. So there's a bit, then there could be 11 that don't want to play for you, that don't like you, and then that becomes an issue. So I've seen so many managers sack like that who tactically could be great but just lose a change room. So for me, it's about communication, keeping everyone outside. Um, and the best of the best do it. You know, the best of the best, you know, your Pep Guardiola's, your Jürgen Klopp's. Um, been fortunate to work under a lot of them, not all of them, but uh, I've got obviously a lot of friends who work there with them and they will say, like, the level of communication, um, they, they feel a part of something. And I feel that's, that's so amazing. Yeah, and that's a, another important message. What we'll do, Stephen, as well, we'll share various links within the show notes here, certainly for Behind the White Lines and maybe some other resources if young people and otherwise maybe want to reach out or find some more information. So we'll be sure to sure. do that as part of the episode. I want to move on to a, a really interesting part of your career, and it's the international stuff, Stephen. So this is a, a really unique role of honour for any player. You've been capped for England. Uh, you scored in your debut against Sweden in November 2012, and you've got a 100% record there, so not bad for any player. Uh, before that England cap, you also represented the Great Britain team in the 2012 Olympics alongside guys like Mika Richards, Ryan Giggs, Scott Sinclair, Craig Bellamy, amongst others. And then, almost 10 years on from all of that, 
you begin playing for Sierra Leone, which I think you're eligible for through your grandfather. And you've since gone on to play in the Africa Cup of Nations and you're now captain of the country. Tell us about all of that. Yeah, what a journey. Just listening to that, it's quite, it's kind of uh, incredible. You know, I, 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 until you kind of put it all together like that, I kind of don't think of it. Um, it just kind of just happens just day by day. Um, yeah, so England, playing for England, incredible. Started at the age of 20 to make my debut. Unbelievable. Prior to that, I was also on for the opportunity to play for Scotland. Um, did all the time was right. I was I grew up in England, although I had family in Scotland. Um, I was I was I was I felt that I I was I was closer to England than I was at Scotland at the time, and I uh, I wanted to see my see how my chances were. So I, I chose to to play for England. Uh, a year later, it seemed like the right decision. Obviously, playing, scoring, everything went well. Um, then I just uh, as my form dipped, really. Obviously, England's kind of like, pushed me away slightly, and. Um, I then went for a period without playing any international football. Um, I then reached out to Steve Clark, said to him, look like I'm in a place now where I was on 27, uh, turned my life around. I'd spent the, the period in Scotland. I'd spent the time away from football, getting sober, was playing in Turkey, uh, been in team of the season, everything was going really well. And I thought, let me reach out. So I reached out to Steve Clark, Stephen Reid, um, really nice guys. Just, I mean, what I, what I love about you know both of them is that they, they, they heard me, that we had a conversation. And that doesn't always happen. You know, we, we have a conversation and I just said to him, look, like I obviously had the opportunity to play for Scotland at the age of 19 or 18 when it was, I believe Craig Levine reached out to me. So I turned it down at the time, um, rightly or wrongly, that's what I, I, I felt at that moment in time. Um, some years have gone by. I really want to play international football. I've loved my time in Scotland. If I could be a part of that setup, if I could uh, find a way of earning earning the opportunity, then then I would love to. And I just wanted to obviously mark their card and let them know of that. Um, Steve said that you know, see at the moment he was focused on mostly players who were playing for Scotland. You know, they just had Shea Adams over and stuff, and um, and that he, that's what he was building. And uh, I respected that with a bit of honest conversation. He said to me, obviously, I'll, I'll keep an eye out and um, look at things moving forward. And then randomly, Sierra reached out to me. So it was as if it was meant to be. Um, I'd never thought about it, to be honest with you. Um, I said, they've never approached me. And then it just yeah, it all, it all happened at once. Um, Carl and Cole, who's actually from Sierra Leone, reached out and said, look, um, they're, they're trying to get hold of you. Would you consider it? And I said, absolutely. I'm actually looking to play international football. I just reached out to Scotland. Um, I'd done a lot of charity work in Sierra Leone from a young age. So I'd, I'd built a score over there. I supported it through a bowler and um, through the mudslides and various other different projects. So I said, absolutely, let's have the conversation. Had the conversation and less than three months later, I was over there playing a friendly in Morocco. Um, and just like what an experience. It's, it's certainly very, very, very different from playing for England. Um, I said, spoken about it recently you know my, my first trip turn up there um they've only got uh, a medium kit there's no other size if you're small large or extra large you're wearing medium so mine looked a bit like a crop top when i was going out for dinner it was uh it had there was there was there was no physio um there was only a certain amount of food which the staff were mostly eating there was there was like the players were there i was like what, what's going on like i was just I sort of had this world of, of, of playing the Premier League and you had my experience at Dundee and, and Yeovil and it's sort of moments, but most of my career was at the top. And I was just, it was just so different. Um, you know, after training, you're there washing your kit in the sink, very, very different experiences. And uh, I just thought, 
I actually love this, you know, like being around the boys, it was just, just such a different experience. You know, it's, um, there's no, it's not the same pressure. There is a pressure because there's 7 million people back home that, that are desperate for you to win. And I mean, desperate, you know, the streets are flooded. Everyone is like so passionate about football, but there's not the pressure within the camp where everything's, uh, you know, really strict and thorough. It's, it's a relaxed environment. And, uh, I just loved it. I loved being a part of it. And, um, then went to Afghan again, a crazy experience, unbelievable. Um, probably one of the highlights of my career actually. Um, and I was then offered the opportunity to be a captain. So, and then said at that moment, look, I will, I'm obviously privileged and I'll, I'll take the captain's armband, obviously, if you promise me that we can make changes, you know, because I don't want to, I want to see the country develop. I don't want to see it as it is, you know, I want to see things develop. And, and since then it has, you know, we have all sides of kit. We have a kit man who washes the kit. We have food, we have the right food, the right amount of food. We have rooms for every player, um, you know, just the basics that, that, that are now there um, and, and organised. So, we now need the performances to go with it. Um, we've had a bit of hit and miss in terms of form, but um, but I, I I believe in work in progress. You know, like like all my life, it's 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 kind of it hasn't just come easy. It's kind of been a process. You know, going back to when I was six or seven, I never just got into Tottenham. It took me until the age of fifteen to get in. So, um, it's a work in progress, and it and for me, you asked me earlier about where's my motivation in terms of football behind all my lies. Sierra Leone is a big motivation for me to continue to play football. You know, we've got the World Cup qualifiers starting in, I want to say September, maybe October. And um, I, I want to be a part of it. So that's a big motivation for me to find a club with the right package and, and get myself uh, right and ready for, for the qualifiers. Yeah, and it definitely covers one of my next questions, which which was about that pride you've clearly got in representing Sierra, Sierra Leone. And I'm sure that's a, a huge driver in keeping you in the game and, and finding the right club moving forward. J just a final question on the international stuff, Stephen. Um, obviously, it is very different from you know the England setup in terms of the professionalism, the money in the game, that you know the levels involved. But just how proud are you to captain the country? And also, what's the feeling like? You know, out with you know financial stuff and levels, is the feeling very different when you're out there but now with the armband? representing Sierra Leone than it was as a, a 20 year old representing England. Yeah, it's completely different. It's it's so much more meaningful. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just meaningful in a sense at the age of 20, I kind of didn't really know what it meant playing for England. You know, playing for Sierra Leone at the age of 31, I, I fully understand what it means. You know, I said, I've been very close to the country for many years and I know about the struggle that so many go through. So. I feel we really represent the struggle and you know everyone, every single one of us that head out there on that pitch know what we are fighting for and with, it's it's a real challenge you know we i mean in terms of england uh you know i play one game as out the next you know you, you myself was certainly uh very very replaceable let's say and whereas with, with sierra leone it's kind of like right like we are we are the chosen ones who that you saw 25 who are there like we can make a difference and there's a lot of, there is pressure that comes with that i said there's there's different kinds of pressure there but um i enjoy that pressure i enjoy that challenge and, and what i want to do um by the time i leave sierra leone my, my, my message is clear is one to leave sierra leone national team in a better place than, than where i found it and secondly to leave a pathway for these players to get to europe so so many of our players are home based they're playing in sierra leone for 50 dollars a month you know that's 90 percent of our squad $50 a month working every single day in the crazy heat um, to, to play football over there with no grass pitches. 
that's where a lot of our players are. So that's what most of our squad's made up of. And like for me, I want to create pathways for these boys to go and play in Europe. So working on opportunities in Sweden, working on opportunities in England as well, but the visa problems uh, makes it slightly more difficult. Um, but that's something that I really want to do is create pathways for these young boys to get the opportunity to go and earn money for their families back home and uh, really start to impact the country in a positive way. So um, that's my long-term aim. As I said, it's 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 certainly challenging um, and a lot of a lot of difficulties since since joining there. But um, I do definitely enjoy it. And you'll see when if, if you ever catch a Sierra Leone game, it's hard to find out where to watch it. But if you do ever find the game, then um, you'll see me play with a smile on my face for sure. Yeah, and there's for anyone looking to check it out in a bit more detail, there's a great video um, that I've just watched in the last day or so on the Behind the White Lines YouTube channel. I think it's about 25 minutes long and it covers a couple of the, the recent qualifiers. And it, it's clear, not just yourself, Dean, you're, you obviously play a big part in that as a captain, but there's clearly so much passion in the group. You know, at different times, you can see guys in the huddle pre-match and there's so much passion from the coach to your various teammates. But as you say, as well, they look like a fun group. There's a lot of smiles and a... I've seen a bit sure. of uh, yeah, kind of away from the dressing room stuff where it looks like guys were doing their initiation songs and dances and all that kind of stuff. It looks like a really enjoyable group and, and I can clearly see why you're, you're keen to stay part of that and to help the, the country flourish. Stephen, big question, I suppose, but what next for you in general? So we've obviously spoken about a project you're very passionate about in between the white lines and, and your ongoing playing career, including the international stuff. But you've also spoken in recent times about coaching and I think you're currently doing your badges, as mentioned. Where do you see that going? And do you think your extensive experiences, good and bad, you know, across your career, will help you become a better coach? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, I, I base a lot of my, my coaching today on my experiences. So my experience on and off the pitch. Uh, so fortunate enough to work with a lot of top managers, fortunate enough to, to have played at the top with a lot of incredible players. Um, you know, Van Dyke, an ex obviously Celtic legend, uh, Victor Wanyama, lots of incredible players that I've sort of played alongside and learned little bits from everyone. So I definitely take that into my um, my coaching uh, philosophy and sort of want to take a bit from everybody and add my own sort of spice. And my own sort of spice, to be honest, will be the the emotional side of it. So the emotional intelligence, the the uh, the caring, the communication, all of that kind of stuff. So I feel like. That's the package that I want to offer. Um, I want to be a manager. I don't really want to go in as a as, as a coach and as an assistant. I would far rather drop down the leagues, go to a, to a non-league club, whatever level that may look like. Um, I want it to be full time because I feel that's where you make a real impact and um, and start from there. So that's kind of my goal. A lot of players go into into academies to begin with. Um, I've kind of got my own academy, so that would be where I would sort of get my practice and then it would be on to on to first team football at whatever level level the opportunity presents itself. Um I'm certainly excited about that. I've got a lot of things in my in my playing career that I feel that I let myself down on uh, a lot of missed opportunities and I uh, I certainly want to want to sort of redeem myself as a, as a manager and uh, and and be be at the very top uh, one day soon. Yeah, it's an exciting kind of next step for you, Stephen, and we'll keep a close eye here on the journey and, and how it all progresses. Stephen, I just want to thank you for being so generous with your time today. It's been a, a really interesting discussion and I think an important discussion as well. Uh, and I think it's one that may well resonate with a lot of people across various levels of football and even beyond. You know, it's something that transcends sport, isn't it? And some of your messages there are, are just so key. Before we start to, to wrap things up, though, do you have any final messages, Stephen? And also um, any details you'd like to provide? 
for anyone interested in finding out a bit more about between the the white lines can do so yeah sure so behind the white lines you can find us on on, on all social media platforms you could we've got our, our website we've we actually launched our first camp um at Roehampton uh on the 7th of august which is incredible so for the for 25 players between the age of 18 to 21 who have been released from from professional academies can can come along and sign up it's free to sign up you're gonna have showcase matches in front of global scouts you've got the opportunity to to explore new pathways whether that be through the universities or or going into apprenticeships in various different companies um and you're sure to have a good time you know so that that's opportunity there for the 18 to 21 year olds if you're outside of that bracket um, we've got so much going on in terms of our socials. So we, I mean, you mentioned there on the YouTube channel that we've got the, the video from Bahana White Lines, uh, Sierra Leone. We've also interviewed like Danny Rose, uh, Gareth Southgate, the interview coming soon. So we've had, we've had, we've had incredible exposure to some really, really top people. Um, all of the interviews, uh, for me are, are slightly unique in the sense we try to show the human side of players. So rather than your sort of typical uh you're looking forward to the game on saturday we kind of really try to go behind it and go how do you feel before a game what, what, what's your routine you know do you feel nervous do you feel scared as a manager as england manager picking 25 players how do you go about that decision you know so all of kind of that we've picked a lot of a lot of uh, people's brains and, and there's 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 something for everyone um and, and and lastly the parents you know because uh it's not just about us as players, you know, as kids, we make it mostly down to our parents or those who sacrifice time to obviously take us back and forth to football. Um, so we have monthly Q and A's. We've got a Q and A coming up on the first of July with Kieran Dyer, and um, he'll be sort of you. You or you will be able to ask him any questions you like about what it was like in his playing career, what it's like as a manager, and what he looks for in, in young players today. So um they're the, they're the opportunities we're trying to we're trying to bring the players to the public and sort of break down that barrier that's that's sort of been there for years and um and yeah you, everyone's welcome to be a part of it yeah and it's, it's really brilliant stuff Stephen and as mentioned we'll be sure to link to the the various resources and the show notes for the episode Stephen the last thing for me is just to thank you very sincerely for taking the time to come on the Celtic Exchange today as I say we'll be keeping a very close eye on on what's next for you but in the meantime all the very best Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.